You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we hear from activists launching a response to mental health crises that will serve as an alternative to calling the police. In terms of the dispatch team, we do dispatch people, right? It's an EMT or an RN that can check vitals. It's a mental health professional that can talk to the participant. And it's also a security liaison. And this person's job, its sole job, is to engage both with law enforcement if and when they do show up, right? And also to engage with community to try to destigmatize what is happening and convince them or help them understand why we're there and why we are better answered than law enforcement to, to respond to this particular situation. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. Civic is underwritten in part by the San Francisco Foundation, which has been acting as a catalyst for change to build strong communities foster civic leadership, and promote philanthropy in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1948. More at sff.org. Tonight, Friday, August 28th, activists with the Anti-Police Terror Project are launching a hotline in Oakland designed to give people someone to call other than police for mental health, substance use, and intimate partner violence incidents. From 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. on Friday and Saturday nights, Oakland residents can call to get help from specially trained responders who will do their utmost not to involve law enforcement. The hotline number is 510-9999-MH1, or 9999641. I talked with Kat Brooks about the initiative. She's executive director of the Justice Teams Network, grassroots activists who are fighting state violence in California and the co-founder of the Anti-Police Terror Project, which you'll hear referred to as APTP. So in a piece that you co-wrote for The Examiner last year, you note that nationwide, at least one in four fatal law enforcement encounters involves an individual with mental illness, and people who struggle with severe mental illness are vastly overrepresented among those who experience police violence, particularly fatal police violence. Can you talk a little bit about those statistics and how they've influenced the creation of the MH First model? Yeah, I mean, so you basically just said the statistics, so I don't know what else to say about them, except for that we as a society have come to a place where we utilize law enforcement to be the answer to every single social ill. And when people are in mental health crisis, what they need is care and compassion, not a badge and a gun. Law enforcement, by their very training, are not equipped to do this. Law enforcement is trained to neutralize a situation as quickly as they can and to do that to force compliance. If you're someone who's either having a mental health moment, right, because all of us have had a mental health moment, you're a heightened emotional, mental stress, anxiety state, or you may be someone suffering from an acute episode of whatever diagnosis you have, someone showing up with a badge and a gun and barking orders at you that you literally may not be able to understand or comprehend isn't going to go over very well and far too often either gets people severely physically harmed, incarcerated, and worst case scenarios, they end up dead. And so... For us, I mean, APTP was born doing rapid response, right? We've been in rapid response to a series of, of issues since our beginning, starting with responding to, to incidents of police violence. And then in terms of mental health, you know, a lot of us have been doing this informally because our communities don't call cops. Mm. And so, you know, we've got our comrades, our friends, our relatives that are in these crises. And so we're bringing food and blankets and talking to them and sitting with them and figuring out what the most compassionate way forward is. And so Asanto and I started talking about Sandra Boykin, who's another co-founder of APTP and who's also a registered nurse with over 10 years of working in mental health facilities, we started talking about, well, if we know all of that and we also know that what the data show is that the number one way, the only way really, to reduce the levels of excessive use of force incidents in our communities is to limit the amount of times that cops engage 
in our communities, then we need to be looking at all of the things that cops are doing that they don't actually need to do. And one of those things is mental health response. And so we began dreaming about MH first, and then that launched in Sacramento in January of this year. And we're excited to launch in Oakland Friday, the 28th. I'm glad you brought up MH first Sacramento because I, I was going to ask about that. I mean, they've had to switch to a hotline only model, as I understand it, but they did previously respond to incidents in person. Have there been lessons or models that have come out of their practice in Sacramento that you want to apply here? Well, it's just important to understand. So MH First is a, both Sacramento and Oakland are a program of anti-police terror project, which yeah. has chapters in both Oakland and Sacramento. So it's essentially the same model, but we believe very deeply as APTP, you can't just take one model and transplant it onto another one, and uh, one model in one city and transplant, transplant it as is into another city. So Sacramento and Oakland are different places. And so what what is transferring is everything that we've learned from MH Sacramento over the last seven months, the principles about being patient-centered and patient-self-determined, not leading with law enforcement, avoiding incarceration, whether it be in a hospital or a jail, all of those things come with us. We will learn in Oakland how we need to adapt for our city. One of the things that we'll be doing together is that we know that even though we're in COVID, there are going to be times where we are going to have to dispatch. So, And we have to do that as safely as possible for us, as safely as possible for the community that we're trying to serve. And so for us, we're trying to figure out as we're living in this COVID time, the same way that we figure out, like, when do we do a car caravan or when do we say we're going to hit the streets with our feet in protest? Mm-hmm. What are the markers, right, where we know that, OK, actually, we need to send somebody, you know, is a cop there already? <laughs> is that cop escalating the situation? Do we need somebody to cop watch? Um, does the person need, you know, transportation to a, to a hospital? Like, those are some of the things that our mental health professionals, as well as our security folks, will be figuring out over the next couple of months about when we do and do not dispatch with physical bodies during COVID. Can you talk a little bit more about the rapid response that APTP has done in the past and and how that informs the work you're doing now? Yeah. So APTP, when we were born, we asked ourselves a few questions. One of the questions was, why are we only moving when law enforcement moves? Why are we only moving when they kill us, when we know that they harm our communities every single day? Why are we only being reactionary instead of visionary? And how do we empower communities to not feel like this is something that just happens over and over again to them, but give them tools to respond in the moment? And so that launched our first responders model. So when the police kill someone, we have a model. My understanding to this day is the only kind of it's the only one of its kind that exists, at least in North America, that trains communities how to respond when cops kill or how to respond when cops rape or how to respond when cops harm our communities. And that's everything from dealing with the immediate trauma on the scene with, you know, mental health workers, social workers, spiritual healers, energy workers, whatever folks need, engaging in vigils or other sorts of things, how to interview witnesses, what your legal rights are, how to identify the family, how to walk families through dealing with the aftermath of the pain and the trauma of experiencing state sanctioned violence. So all of those things that we've been doing successfully for the last six years now, Those are lessons that were applied to this model of rapid response, even in how we engage and talk to people who will call the hotline, right? That it's not an interrogation, it's a conversation, and you are leading the conversation. So just like when we talk to families, we're not like, well, what was he like, and what was his age, and where did he work, right? Like, it's not how you talk to somebody in trauma. Or even if, you know, you're in a community where someone has just lost someone to state violence, same thing. You don't want to do that because the community is going to be like, first of all, who are you? Are you police? And I'm in my own grief and trauma right now, right? right? I'm not about your agenda. And so those best practices of letting the people that you're serving guide the conversation and the direction of of the dialogue, those are like some of the most important things, I think, the principles that we're carrying into our MH First model. 
So if I understand correctly, what is a little bit new here is that the goal is to respond to psychiatric emergencies, substance use disorder support, uh, domestic and inter- intimate partner violence situations instead of police to sort of, you know, prevent that from being escalated by police presence in the, in the first place. And so how how do you do that? I mean, what happens when somebody calls the hotline? So when someone calls the hotline, an intake happens. But again, it's a patient, patient's the wrong word. It's a participant driven conversation, right? Mm -hmm. So the person is going, the person that answers the call is going to assess whether or not you're suffering from substance abuse, you know, issues. Are you safe if it's an interpersonal, you know, violence situation? If you're not, then figure out what extraction looks like. Also, uh, maybe there's a medical condition, you know, things like low blood sugar can present as mental health crisis. Mm -hmm. Do we need to get some some food and some other things into you. And that conversation is going to go on for as long as it needs to go on. At that point, a plan, a safety plan will be put together, whether it looks like calling a family member, whether that looks like figuring out how to get you to a clinic or a hospital if that's necessary, whether that looks like getting you to you know, a community person. Um, but the patient drives that safety plan. And then the volunteer on the phone will follow up with that person to make sure that that safety plan happened. And if it didn't, no judgment, no shame. Okay, that didn't work. Well, what will work? Right. And then there could be a bazillion pathways from there. There's no one size fits all because there's no phone call that's going to be exactly the same. So I want to talk about Jacob Blake, because there was another incident where police shot an unarmed black man just this past weekend. They seriously injured him as he was opening the door to his car with his children inside. And that situation reportedly developed out of a domestic dispute, what was described as a domestic dispute. And one of the kinds of incidents that MH First is going to respond to is domestic and intimate partner violence, including when a victim extraction is needed, as I understand it. So how would MH First responders deal with those situations? So the first thing, I, I, what I don't want to do is get into the, the fear-mongering part, right? Mm-hmm. So as a survivor of, of a multi-time, multi-partner survivor, of domestic violence. This is particularly dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. The, the, the image that the cops are going to paint is that every single domestic violence situation involves somebody with a, a gun or a knife or a weapon and is deadly. That's actually not true. Right. The vast majority of things are the initial blow up, right? And then the calming down. And so um, then f- it's, it's more about trying to figure out then if the person does want to be extracted and working with our security team to do that because we've got professionals that are trained in extraction and in dealing with those kinds of situations. But the other thing is that is figuring out like where is safe for both the person who caused the harm to go and also the person that experienced the harm to go, right? And that's rooted in building relationships inside a community. We, we I will identify safe houses, safe places. Th- these are community-based interventions for people to go where we can assess, figure out, get the help that we need. And the other thing that's important for people to know is that for a lot of people that are in intimate partner violent, intimate, yeah, IPD, intimate partner violent situations, they actually, for the most part, a lot of times don't want the family to be separated. They want the help to figure out how to stay together. And that's where the partnership with the counselors and the social workers and the mental health professionals, that's why those things become so important so that we're dealing with it holistically um, and and, and through a transformative justice lens as opposed to through a punitive carceral lens that doesn't serve anybody. Now, there are situations there are situations where it is absolutely unsafe for the woman to be in that, that situation. And then that would be a different tact. And we're also not of the mindset that we never, ever, 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 ever have to call the police. That would be ludicrous. There are situations that we are not equipped to deal with. If somebody is there with a loaded gun, we're not putting our volunteers in that, in, in that situation. And that would be a time where it would be important for 911 to be involved. But that's not the vast majority of cases. 
Yeah, I mean, I did want to ask about that, too. I mean, it's also about, in many ways, keeping the people who are responding safe as well, because <laughs> what if somebody does call 911? That, that seems like... It seems like a risk because, like you said, there's an inclination. We've been basically trained to call 911 in, for everything, for every possible situation. So how do, you, how do you make sure that people aren't inclined to do that, that everybody is able to stay out of a situation where law enforcement is involved? Sure. So the first thing I want to do is like destigmatize that. Like I haven't called the cops in over a decade for anything, <laughs> right? Um, but I've also been blessed enough to shape my life and, and be surrounded by a team of people that can respond to most situations. That said, when I see something you know happening that feels unsafe, it's still my first instinct. I still pick up my phone and look at the nine, right? I just mm. have deprogrammed myself or reprogrammed myself not to. So that's the other thing important. So in terms of the dispatch team, when we do dispatch people, right? It's an EMT or an RN that can check vitals. It's a mental health professional that can talk to the participant. And it's also a security liaison. And this person's job, its sole job, is to in, engage both with law enforcement if and when they do show up, right? And also to engage with community to try to destigmatize what is happening and convince them or help them understand why we're there and why we are better answered than law enforcement to, to respond to this particular situation. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole role on the response team for someone to, to engage in, in just that. And, you know, I mean, ultimately, it's not like we're not, we can't snatch phones out of people's hands. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, that's not, that's not going to de-escalate anything. Yeah. Um, but but, but what, we, what, what we can do, and because APTP has been on the streets in Oakland for so long and we do have deep relationships, I mean, we would be hard-pressed, I think, to be in an Oakland neighborhood and there'd be nobody on that street who knew who we were, right. who knew about the work that we did. And so because of that, um, we feel pretty confident in the relationships that we built with Oaklanders that we're going to be able to have these conversations in real time with people. And even with law enforcement, to be perfectly honest with you, OPD knows who we are, right? Hmm. They know who we are and they know what we do. Um, and I mean, if you even notice that at our protests, for the most part, they're not there. They leave us alone and let us do what we do um, without their meddling. So um, we think, you know, and I don't, I don't say that lightly and I don't take it for granted. That's years of, you know, really hard work and um, I think it's going to serve us well here in Oakland. But for folks that are thinking about doing this in other places, like, know that. You've got to have relationships with the people, with the folks that work with the unhoused, with the folks that are, you know, doing the community clinics, with the folks that are doing the IPV work. You know, we've been in conversations with all of these people for months. We didn't just pop up and say, this is what we're going to do. Yep. Yeah, talking a little bit more about responder safety, I mean, this is launching as a hotline tonight, August 28th, and you're launching during a global pandemic that's keeping many people home for safety reasons. You know, why launch now in particular and in this way? Well, a couple of reasons. I mean, we were planning, we've been planning this, like I said earlier, we've been doing the work informally for quite some time. We've been planning this launch for quite some time. We haven't stopped organizing against police violence because there's a pandemic. We can't stop responding to community crisis because there's a pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, And what we've seen, particularly in Sacramento, is that COVID is actually increasing people's need for mental health services, right? As people deal with the combined stress of being afraid of becoming infected with the virus or dealing with loved ones who have the virus, that have died from the virus, losing their jobs, losing their homes. Folks need this service right now. And so... Is it a risk? Could it be a potential risk to, to us? Absolutely. Um, but it's a risk that we're willing to take. We'll do everything that we can. We'll, we have the PPE. We'll do the social distancing. We won't dispatch unless it's absolutely necessary. But the answer is never not to serve the people, ever. 
I want to talk about, because you mentioned uh, volunteers, there's a bill um, in the state legislature that's been put forward with the intention of getting funding into the hands of community groups to do the kind of work that police are often tasked with right now, but that advocates are increasingly saying they shouldn't be. Um, You know, Oakland City Council has voted to allocate money to a pilot program to send EMTs and counselors to respond to nonviolent calls. How is MH First Oakland funded now and what kind of funding would it take to, to build it up to where you'd like to see it go? Right. So you're talking about the Crisis Act that is being sponsored by Assemblymember Kamlager Dove in um, Southern California, of which APTP um, and my other organizations, Justice Teams Network, are co-sponsors of. Mm-hmm. Right now, we are funded through really the, gen- the generous donations of the people, right? Um, that APTP, we, we, we ha- we're not a nonprofit, and we have been sustained completely for, for the most part um, by Oaklanders and people actually across the country that see the work that we do and appreciate it. We also have been talking to foundations, and there are foundations that are interested in this work and healing justice and alternatives to violent policing. And because of our track record, we've, found, we've had foundations approach us and say, hey, we want to help you expand this work. Does, city, does the city need to put some skin in the game? Absolutely. And we've been in conversations with elected officials, and yes, they're going to fund macro, but the only way to access macro is 911. And so what we know is that off top, at least 30 to 40 percent of folks that are most in need are never going to die on 911. And that was a fight that we had with the folks that they were designing macro, telling them, you know, like if you talk to the people that actually need these services, they're going to tell you that they don't care what is happening. They're not dialing that number. Unfortunately, that fell on deaf ears, which actually makes MH First all that more important because it gives people access to services they need without having to go through law enforcement systems. Um, ultimately, like we, we would we would love the same type of funding as macro so that we can have infrastructure, we can have 24-7 you know, mental health response. I mean, part of why we wanted to, to, to create MH First was because of a, a dark joke that we had. It was like, if you're lucky enough to have a mental health crisis between the hours of 9 to 5, you might get mobile response mm. without law enforcement, yeah. right? But that's sort of not how mental health works. Yeah. So, um, that's, and that's why we picked the hours that we picked. You know, during the weekends where people are more likely to, you know, be having, uh, having stressful issues, maybe engaging in substance abuse, alcohol, et cetera, on the weekends, we want to fill that gap that is currently not filled by any city or county That was Kat Brooks, executive director of the Justice Teams Network and co-founder of the Anti-Police Terror Project. To get more details about what happens when someone in distress calls the MH First Oakland hotline, I also talked with Daniela Kantarova. She's a licensed clinical psychologist and president of Psychologists for Social Responsibility. She's been working on APTP's First Responders Committee since 2014. Let's start with the basics. When a person calls this hotline, the MH First Oakland hotline, what happens? So we will really just try to assess what is that person's need, you know. So we want to make sure that we provide warm and compassionate response to people's difficult situations, right? And so what we will try to do is first connect with them, you know, establish some sense of connection and then get to know or learn about what is it that they're going through what is their need and see how we can best, you know, support them in the moment. What kinds of people and with what kinds of training are going to be answering these phone calls? When you say we assess their need and see what we can offer, I mean, what, what is on the table? Are, are there psychiatrists, doctors, mm-hmm. first, res- you know, medical first responders? Who's, who's yeah. there picking up the phone? So we have an eclectic mix of volunteers right now, Um, really strong and powerful group that I feel very excited 
to work with and very grateful, you know, to be connected with. And in this first round, uh, we really had made sure to work with volunteers that are vetted and known by us or by somebody, you know, in our APTP circle that have already extensive training. So many of them are mental health professionals. Some of them are medical professionals, you know, nurse practitioners, and we have a psychiatrist uh, that just joined our team as well. And we also have folks who have done peer counseling and sort of like really very stable, thorough, sturdy um, grassroots work, you know, in uh, providing support to folks who have all kinds of uh, mental health emergencies. So when a call comes in from somebody who is in some kind of crisis, how is it routed? Do they go to the, to a central hotline and then somebody decides, oh, we have this person who can help you, or it does anybody who picks up the phone is qualified to respond to any situation? Yeah, so we basically have a system where the call will go to the central number and then it will get rounded to volunteers on shift. So yes, so the person who is signed up for the shift in that time will pick up the call. However, they will also have a backup person available for support and consult. And then that second person can also contact another third person. So there is sort of like a, a little group, you know, that will be working together on a shift that will be able to support each other um, with consultation or additional research of resources. One of the um, difficult aspects of this is for somebody who doesn't want to go to the hospital or otherwise get treatment when they're approached by someone during a crisis, the only option to get them into treatment sometimes is to force them essentially with a 5150 yeah. involuntary hold. And those, if I understand correctly, actually need to be done with a law enforcement officer there. And the whole point of MH First is to prevent officers from having to respond to these situations in the first place. What, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what the what the impact of the fifty one fifty process is, and and how MH First will handle those situations? You know, we always say that we don't lead with law enforcement, and that yeah, you know, we will do everything possible to address the crisis without resorting to fifty one fifties. You know, because that's something that we do want to avoid as much as possible, and that's something that oftentimes people find traumatizing, you know, in general. And there is even some research that shows that suicidality might increase. The risk of suicidality might increase after a 5150, right? And so hmm. 5150 itself is not really a guarantee of like a resolution or ongoing safety, you know? So we don't lead with law enforcement and we have folks who are committed to do like a thorough safety planning with the caller. We provide a thorough training and we talk with people about the values of really trying to focus on harm reduction in terms of like reducing the harm of contact with law enforcement as much as possible. So under what circumstances would you involve law enforcement? Yeah, you know, our commitment is really, really work as hard as possible not to involve them because we do see them as 
a factor that can increase the risk, right? Like that can increase the harm. And we've definitely worked on cases in the past, you know, of police killings where, you know, law enforcement was called into mental health emergency, which resulted in a murder. And so we have that always at the forefront of our minds, right? Like that, that's like calling the police doesn't guarantee a safety. So we are doing as much as we can to train our volunteers to really try all of the possible um, measures, right? Like to safety plan with the caller and to provide as much as possible of emotional support and reassurance and just like do whatever we can. And I know that sometimes there might be a situation where we have to call an ambulance, right? Like what comes to my mind is if a suicide attempt, for instance, is already in progress, right? Like then what can you do, right? Like you have to call somebody to get like immediate medical attention. And with that, we've done like a lot of research around like how to get help, you know, and again, reduce the contact with the police and, um, I know um, Oakland Power Project in the past has recommended calling the fire department, you know, that can then um, send um, first responders and, you know, reduce potentially the involvement of the police in a way. So we're committed to do as much as we can. And we also understand, you know, that we still exist in a system where uh, oftentimes life-saving efforts unfortunately involve um, police department that then further complicates or harms those, those efforts right and so it's like this bind that we exist in as long as we exist in this system so talking about covid and being in a pandemic with the pandemic there are racial disparities there too you know of course. Um, okay. And those are only compounding the existing racial and ethnic disparities in access to mental health care. According to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, while the rates of behavioral health disorders may not significantly differ from the general population, Black and Latino people have substantially lower access to mental health and substance use treatment. So as a psychologist and, and president of Psychologists for Social Responsibility, what structural problems do you see that lead to this outcome? where there's just disparities in treatment, disparities in what's av available, and ultimately disparities in how encounters with police play out? Oh, there is so much. There is so much to that. Um, I think part of it is just the entire kind of history of the field, you know, which is very much rooted in catering to the white middle class, you know, catering to white upper middle classes. And I think there is right now a lot of discourse in the field of mental health about like how it really needs to be evolved to, to serve uh, people who are black, who are indigenous, you know, who are people of color, who have faced like structural injustices. And there needs to be understanding that it's not sufficient to think about like, you know, coming to therapy for 50 minutes a week without actually also thinking about like structural interventions and changes, because I see a lot of people who come into therapy present with trauma. And in my opinion, trauma is very much rooted in white supremacy and in capitalism, right? Like those um, conditions create trauma and we need to be able to acknowledge that in our mental health 
um, settings, you know, but then beyond the sort of like philosophical and like issues with the approaches that we take, there's also the financial aspect, right? So Bay Area is like the hub of like therapists, right? Like there are so many people who provide services. However, right, like if a person is in private practice, usually it's pretty expensive, right? Like to find a private therapist who might be like real expert in what they're doing, but the cost of it might be prohibitive, you know, like I go to therapy, but I can only go every other week, you know, because it's super expensive. So that's, that's a big barrier. And like, what do we do, right? Like we are funding, our cities are funding police and this country is funding military, you know, so much that, you know, there is no money for other things like healthcare, including mental health treatment, right? And so, like, we need to rethink about how funds are being funneled and who is actually the government serving, you know? So I think the big discourse about defunding the police currently is very much tied to, like, also access, right? Like, to services, um, including access to mental health services. Daniela, we're out of time, but I want to thank you so much for talking with me and wish you good luck with the launch tonight. All right. Thanks so much, Laura. That was Daniela Kandarova, president of Psychologists for Social Responsibility and part of the MH First Oakland Initiative. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic. Civic is underwritten in part by the San Francisco Foundation, which has been acting as a catalyst for change to build strong communities foster civic leadership, and promote philanthropy in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1948. More at sff.org.